Hi, and welcome to the Science of the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. When you think about New York City, what kinds of images come to mind? Maybe it's the iconic skyline, or your favorite pizza place, or performers at a subway station. Whatever it is, I'd guess that for most people, thinking about New York City doesn't call to mind peaceful rivers where people enjoy beautiful canoe trips and an entire ecosystem complete with varied and beautiful wildlife lives right alongside the metropolitan bustle of the Bronx. The Bronx River Alliance wants to change that, though, and make the Bronx River Corridor into a better loved and better understood part of the cityscape. In partnership with the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation, the Bronx River Alliance aims to conserve and restore the Bronx River ecosystem so that it can be a healthy ecological, recreational, and education resource for the communities through which the river flows. In this podcast, we'll be hearing from Damian Griffin, Chief Educator at Bronx River Alliance, and Leanne Inesho, an intern on the Alliance's ecology team and graduate student at the City College of New York studying Earth Systems and Environmental Science and Technology. Damien's going to be taking us on a tour of some of the sites where the Bronx River Alliance conducts studies. First up, we'll be learning about a project to monitor eels that live in the river. After that, we'll hear from Leanne about her work on water quality monitoring, the restoration of Shoelace Park, and more. To wrap up, we'll rejoin Damien for a visit to a soon-to-be-opened fish ladder which will help migrating fish climb around a dam to make their way upriver to spawn. Enjoy! So, so this is 177th Street. This is the uh, on-ramp to the Cross Bronx Expressway and the Sheridan Expressway. And it's almost at the top of the tidal section of the estuary. So this is where we put our, our eel mops. So the, the, the official name, uh, when the, the researchers developed it, they called it Artificial Eel Habitat and then uh, Chris Bowser from the New York State DEC. That stands for Department of Environmental Conservation. Started doing eel monitoring in New York. Um, he works a lot with kids and he's a very fun guy. So he started calling them eel mops because they thought that's what it looked like. Uh, but apparently the new name is the Medusa apparatus. So depending on who you're, you're talking to. So it's, it's I'll, I'll pull one up. It's just a polypropylene rope. Okay. Attached to a saucer like from a plant, and uh, uh, the, the rope is untwined, unbraided, and it floats. So when it's underwater, it becomes almost like a, uh, a habitat. Oh, cool. And the eels come, the, the, we're, we're monitoring in the spring for glass eels as they're monitored coming upstream. And uh, we do it now just to keep uh, any other organisms that we, that we can find. Um, but they don't get trapped in there, they actually utilize it. They, awesome. they're, they're only active at night, so it, when the sun starts to come up, they're looking for a place to hide. We provide it, and then we pull them out at low tide in the daytime. Uh, you actually have to wash the mops. You put them in a big bucket and wash them out. And then um, if we're able, we actually take them up over the dam. Because right now there's no direct feed to the freshwater section, which cool. is where they want to go. With the eels that we're monitoring here, they, they're uh, two, two inches about. Oh, it's amazing. It's, it, they're, they're coming from the, the Sargasso Sea. They've been traveling for about a year. They were born at, uh, as larvae, and then they free float, and then all of a sudden when they hit a certain size, when they're able to swim, they start uh, smelling fresh water and going in some direction. Nobody's really sure. They're not sure uh, with eels like they are with salmon, they don't, that they return to their spawning grounds, or in this case, they return to the adult grounds of mom and dad. 
God, it's super cool. Yeah. And they, yeah, when in the springtime, they've traveled uh, uh, about uh, two to 3,000 miles to get here, and they're trying to get up to fresh water. And their glass eels, uh, they're all American eels, but the life stages are glass eels, uh, because they're clear as glass, that's to avoid predation. And then when they get a little bit older, they start to have a very defined head, and they're called elvers. Adult eels are yellow eels because they have a yellow bottom. And then when it comes time for spawning again, one time return to the ocean, uh, they're called silver eels because they turn silvery and their eyes glow blue. That's awesome. Isn't that crazy? How it, long does their life cycle take? Uh, nobody's really sure. Oh, okay, cool. It's, it's, uh, they've never been bred in captivity. Uh, all eels in captivity were captured as, as, as young. And even for the like the sushi industry, mm. they catch a lot of glass eels to raise oh. them to adults to be able to, to uh, eat them. Um, but it's, it's uh, expected that they, they become mature anywhere from 6 to 20 years. Oh gosh! So there's That's no a long time. yeah, it can be anything in there, and they're not sure what it is that that makes that decision. It's just time time to go back to the ocean to to um, have that one one moment of procreation. <laughs> How big are they when they reach maturity? Um, males are three feet, females are four feet. Cool. They get really, really thick. They're really gorgeous. But so when this thing is in the water, I'll throw it out. You'll see how it it's sort of. Uh, floats up and so we put them out in an, in an array of three so that it gives them a choice and it also just provides more more uh, uh, square square inches for them to search for something awesome so when you pull these out are they normally just kind of like embedded in the grassy moppy part yeah they wriggle in and that's oh. the neat thing uh, fish will try to jump out the eels they hold on tighter because th th this is safety to them open water is, is nothing but danger so when we start to pull these up we don't have to worry about them um, trying to jump out. Do they secrete sticky stuff to hold on, or is it just a question of being kind of entangled? Yeah, they'll just, they'll just wrap themselves up cool. in it and, and really fit in. When you monitor, what kind of data are you looking for? Like quantity and how how they're doing? Like what, what is it that you're monitoring specifically? Right now it's just quantity. Okay, cool. It's just, it's uh, the, the larger eel monitoring program uh, with the DEC under uh, Chris Bowser, mm -hmm. uh, they use, they'll, on small streams, they'll put nets across the whole river and catch every eel that tries to make it up. But in a river like this, we, we can't. It's too big and it's also too flashy. Okay. Uh, any nets out here would be destroyed. That rain we had the yeah. other day, the, the river grew um, from uh, 30 cubic uh, feet a second to over 900 cubic feet Whoa. a second. So it's, uh, it, it gets out of hand. Um, and so in this case, it is, it's, the, when we first did it, it was just to prove that there's a population trying to, trying to migrate okay. upstream. And then um, when we realized it was working so well, uh, decided to, to keep them out. And it, it is just keeping track of numbers. Is it to keep track of the health of the eel population and whether it's becoming more robust or as an indicator of the environment's health? Um, or both, or like what exactly is the, the end goal of the monitoring project? In, in our case, it's just the eel population. Does having um, this tracking system of the different kinds of critters that live in this ecosystem um, come in handy for policy debates about how much should be dedicated towards the restoration of the ecosystem? Right, exactly. That's um, the, the, the other big program that, that's happening on the river down in the mouth is the oyster program. Mm -hmm. 
So the, the reintroduction of oysters for years, uh, people were saying that you couldn't do it. The river's too polluted, um, you'll, they'll, they'll never survive, it's just not a good idea, you'd just be uh, killing a lot of uh, oysters. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Joe Racklin from Lehman College started walking the shorelines uh, in the south, just keeping track and just trying to see if, if wild oysters were trying to populate the area. So oh. it was his proving that they were out there that made people say, okay, let's, let's do a little bit more. And now the mouth of the river has the largest restored oyster reef in the New York, New Jersey harbor. Awesome. Yeah, but, it, but, it, and it, but it's exactly that. It's when you, when you keep, keep count of something, prove that it's there, then people pay more attention and uh, you get more funding. So what lives in this ecosystem? A, a, a lot of different types of fish. There are uh, over 30 species of fish that have been found swimming from the estuary all the way up to the freshwater sections. Um, because there are a lot of fish, there are also a lot of uh, wading birds, uh, uh, egrets, uh, uh, great blue herons, um, night herons, uh, snowy, snowy egrets, glossy ibis, really cool, cool birds. Awesome. Uh, uh, also, in the last few years, we've been seeing more uh, osprey, fish, fish hawks, down in the down in, in the estuary. Uh, we also have mammals, though. We have uh, muskrat, plenty of muskrat up and down the river. Um, but the, the most famous organism at this point is that we now know there are two beaver, at least two beaver, really? living on the river. Yeah, somewhere up and around the, the Bronx Zoo. We'll be hearing more from Damien soon. Now, here's Leanne. To start off, could you please tell us about the water quality monitoring project? Um, yeah, so um, we're collecting at nine sites along the river that's um, in New York City. And uh, what I find interesting is that um, there's actually, well, for the data that we've collected so far, we can't see like a definite pattern of where the bacterial level is always high or where the bacterial level is always low. Um, it it just changes a lot over time. But we do see the correlation between uh, the amount of rainfall and the amount of bacteria. So um, if we collect samples um, right after a rainfall, heavy rainfall, uh, the bacterial levels are like really high. We think it's because of the CSOs that's coming into the river. Um, could you explain what that is, please? Yeah, so uh, CSOs, um, so it's uh, sewer overflows. So basically, um, because uh, New York City has a, a sewer system that's combined with stormwater um, system. So every time it rains, the sewers collect the stormwater off the streets. And um, if the, the sewers can't take all the water that's it, that it's collecting to the wastewater treatment plants, then um, it just discharges it directly into water bodies. So some... Um, sometimes uh, raw sewage comes out directly into the river. Yuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> besides just being kind of gross, what are the ecological repercussions of that, that um, wastewater entering the water system? Okay, so, uh, uh, yeah, wastewater has a lot of um, biological content. So if um, there's a lot of um, nutrients in our rivers, then it could lead to 
um, algal blooms, which are um, uh, little microorganisms that basically uh, flourish in the river and then they eat up, they use up all of the oxygen in the river, which can harm um, the other um, organisms that are in the river. Could you go into a little bit more detail about um, like what data are you collecting specifically? Okay, so at each site we collect a water sample and that water sample um, we put, um, we take it back to the lab and uh, analyze for enterococcus levels, which is um, basically a bacteria you find in your poop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, and then the other things that we also um, collect are the uh, dissolved oxygen, the pH, the temperature of the water, the salinity, and the conductance of the water. Cool. How does that information correspond to the overall health of the ecosystem? So all those data are pretty much um, connected to each other. The temperature affects the dissolved oxygen and the um, conductivity and all that stuff. Um, the dissolved oxygen, as it said, is pretty important to the organisms that are in the water because they need that to breathe. And then if it gets really low, you can actually see um, fish dying. Um, um, so basically all those parameters, um, they have like a specific uh, range wherein um, if they're in, within that range, basically um, the river would be okay. But if they go too high or too low, they would be the animals and plants that if it depend on the river would be, would be in trouble. So um, we try to see how that changes depending on other data like uh, rainfall or the weather. That's the point of our water quality monitoring um, across different parts of the river. Very cool. You know if since they've been collecting data, if the river has been getting generally healthier, is it is it improving? Is it getting worse? Is it staying the same? That's the thing we can't really say right now because we don't have that much data yet. Um, they, they started collecting um, enterococcus levels actually like I think a year or two ago, but that was only at certain points in the river. And this is the first time that we're actually doing it at nine sites across the river regularly. So um, I think in order to answer that, we need to collect more probably across uh, the years. <laughs> Are you working on other projects while you're there? Actually, my main project for this summer is to complete the draft of the Shoelace uh, Park Restoration Plan. Um, it's uh, this strip of park uh, located in the upper upper region of the river within New York City. Um, so basically, uh, Bronx River Alliance, along with Department of Park, have been doing a lot of restoration and um, stormwater capture projects in that park. And I'm just trying to compile um, everything that they've been doing um, so far to see, uh, to compare uh, the before and after, and also to include what else they want to do in the future. Why does this park need to be restored? Okay, so that park is um, really heavily used, and then um, it's right along the river, so, and it's been invaded by um, invasive species, uh, particularly Japanese knotweed, like right along the river, you can see basically some of it just, uh, it 
just covering the whole riverbank. So um, uh, one of the big things that the Bronx River Alliance and the Department of Parks has been doing is uh, trying to kill out the Japanese knotweed, which is which is basically outcompeting all the native species in the river um, because it's really pervasive. Um, and then they're also trying to um, restore the, um, the riverbanks to um, all the native species and then uh, so that it'll provide more habitat for different um, kinds of fish and other wildlife in the river. Um, also, they're trying to improve uh, the stormwater capture in that area because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of flooding in that area when there um, there's really uh, bad rainfalls and um, a lot of rain can also lead to erosion of the river riverbank. So they're trying to capture the rainwater so that it doesn't uh, directly flow into the river. It seems like having access to these beautiful environments and learning about them in person must inspire people to care more about their conservation. Have you noticed that to be the case? Yeah, that's actually true because um, I live in Queens and we don't have that many parks around here um, in our area. Um, and then when I did when I did go up to the Bronx and was able to see like the river and like different parts um, of the parks and the rivers there, I was like very surprised, like all the um, all the wildlife that was still there and then it's just um and that you can just see by just going to the park it was very it was very cool and yeah i think that um people who do have access to that um are very um curious and very uh excited to see like all the fish and all the turtles and wildlife in the river and then um when they do see that they do ask you like uh what can we do to um, to keep these uh, um, wildlife right here and to help them flourish? What inspired you to study and work in environmental science? Because I uh, grew up in the Philippines and I grew up in the city in the Philippines, but my father was um, in uh, actually grew up in the provinces. So uh, I lived in the city, but I came back to the province every now and then. And I can see like the real difference between the city and the province. And then like, I just, I just felt like um, people who had access to contact with nature, it's just um, healthier for you. <laughs> but I guess because uh, green spaces also help out with all the pollution and I don't know, it just makes you happier. <laughs> what are some ways for listeners to get involved in these awesome projects if they'd like to help out? Oh, well, um, there are a lot of volunteer programs um, across the city, uh, especially uh, with nonprofit organizations. I mean, I know the Bronx River Alliance has um, a lot of volunteer events where you can help with uh, invasive species management um, and other things like that. Yeah, the first thing would be to start volunteering because there's a lot of areas that need help and then not a lot of people are out there doing it. Thank you so much. Now we're going back to Damien, this time at a different site where construction on a fish ladder is almost complete. 
The so-called ladder is sort of like a zigzagging road that winds up a steep mountain. Where there's a dam that interferes with the fish's ability to migrate upriver, the Bronx River Alliance is building a small canal that the fish can swim through to go around the dam. Just like the Switchback Mountain Roads, the canal zigzags so they're not too steep for the fish to swim up. <laughs> um, but this is, uh, uh, this is River Park. It's one of the most popular parks in the neighborhood because it has uh, barbecue grills. But for the last uh, eight months, it's been under construction because this is also the first dam on the river and uh, going upstream and they're about to finish what's called the 182nd street fish passage oh, so cool. it's the first it's the first fish ladder in uh in new york city awesome and just for some background what's the purpose of the dams on this river uh industrial this this is the site not only of the first geographic dam on the river uh but also uh historically oh. so um the first uh, colonial settlers in this area uh, built a, a first dam right around this same area in 1680. So this river's been dammed for almost 400 years. And that was for a sawmill and a grist mill for their, their products, for their own their own use. It eventually became more of an, oh, there's a black crown night heron on the other side of the river. Oh, See it yeah. walking? Awesome. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. He lives they're here. They're pretty. Yeah, they're gorgeous. They're gorgeous. Uh, and then in this area where we are now was big industry. It was textiles and, and bleaching mills and dyeing mills and all sorts of stuff. Uh, the first uh, machine-made carpets were made right down a block south of here. Uh, a local, local carpenter got together with a loom uh, uh, textile guy and figured out how to do it. So they, they, the, uh, ideally, depending on your, your perspective, would have been to remove the dam because that's, if you, uh, American Rivers is one organization that, that's their big focus. And it's, uh, ecologically, it just stops everything right here. Nothing, there's no more connection, no mixing of the salt water with the fresh water. You, the, 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 the fish that would want to come up here cannot make it. The eels, they do make it. They're able to climb up walls and some, somehow around on, on wet nights, uh, amazingly. The fish cannot, but so this is what, that's what this is. This is specifically built for um, migratory herring alewife cool so in, instead of removing the dam the, the reason they didn't remove the dam uh, depending on who you speak to a lot of it is just aesthetics you know some people will say it's historic it's been here you know since th this this dam uh, is probably 150 200 years old um, if you look you look at the how attractive it is with the water splashing off mm -hmm. those rocks were actually glued to the front of it by the bronx zoo <laughs> to make it more attractive that's funny yeah it, it, it's it's yeah you know um, but, but i assume it serves no like functioning purpose anymore at all none huh. at all but this is the fish passage sort of takes it, it it turns it into a manageable stream for the fish so when it when they unblock it the water runs down and uh, the baffles in the canal slow the water just a little bit so that the fish can actually hop up over those things like they're hopping up over rocks and then hide out of the current on their way up. And then at the bottom, they're supposed to be able to stop and, and rest a little bit. And, uh, so they'll swim. They're gonna be coming upstream, we know for a fact. Uh, every year they've done uh, monitoring, proving that alewife herring are trying to swim upstream. And when this opens in maybe a month or so, uh, there won't be any fish migrating at that time. It, it won't be until spring of next year. 
but there's going to be a video camera over here. Oh, cool. So they're going to be a video camera and a counter. So they'll get to see exactly how many. Neat. Yeah. It's a really, really cool thing. I mean, we're in the, we're in the South Bronx. Mm -hmm. And I, I live in Hunts Point. And just to have the opportunity, well, in my case, to be able to work with this stuff. It's yeah. Like, uh, it's, it's amazing. And then to be able to share with people. So when that's built, and to be able to take all the people over here in this playground and say, hey, come on over. <laughs> let, let, me, let me show you. Um, everybody loves to, to learn about it, right? When, when, but you have to have access. It, historically, the river's been walled off or fenced off or it was private property or industry blocking the way. And so uh, a lot of the work that the Alliance has done in, in uh, partnership with the Parks Department is to allow people to get closer. So remember when Leanne was saying they need more data? If you're feeling inspired, you can absolutely get involved and help the scientists working to understand this ecosystem collect the information they need. Here's Damien explaining how from the lab. Well, we, we actually have a, a new uh, web page that's about to go online cool. called bronxriverwater.org. Nice. And uh, if people are sampling water, it has to be Bronx River water, mm -hmm. uh, but it can be sampling it for temperature, for salinity, uh, and other simple um, parameters, but it could be for dissolved oxygen, could be for bacteria if you work with us here, or ammonia, which is actually a pretty simple test. We are, we're asking people to just go out and um, use uh, uh, the same test they use for a fish tank. Oh, cool. <laughs> and we'll have, a, we'll have a spot where people can actually upload their data directly to us and everybody will have access to it. That's awesome. That's what we're, we're trying. We want anybody to be involved at the level that they're able. But we want it to be valid data because we want to share it with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so that's exactly why we're trying to get this site up so that, you know, we can, it's not that hard to use a thermometer. You have to make sure the thermometer works. <laughs> but, uh, to, you know, knowing the temperature of the water, um, we had eels on the river before any of the other monitoring sites in New York State had them. But it was because of the temperature, Chris thinks. Our river was a few degrees warmer than all the other rivers oh, cool. in New York State. And because we had that data, so you need to know what the river temperature is mm -hmm. to gauge when those alewife are gonna come back That's or when really the eels. Cool. And, and it's a pretty simple thing, but it's, you know, um, anybody can help. Anybody can help us learn more about it. You can also join Damien and his colleagues for super fun canoe trips. For more on how and when to get involved, visit bronxriver.org. That's it for this episode. Science in the City would like to thank the Brotherton Foundation for their generous support of this podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org. You can also follow us on social media. We're Sci and the City on Twitter and Science and the City on Facebook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>